Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are very pleased to have our Behind the Knife Annals of Surgery Journal Club. And we're very pleased to welcome Dr. Ronald Mayer, who's the Jane and Donald D. Trunkey Professor and Vice Chair of Surgery at the University of Washington. He's also the Surgeon-in-Chief at Harvard U Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, and was the most recent president of the American Surgical Association. Dr. Mayer, welcome to Annals of Surgery Behind the Knife Journal Club. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, where'd you grow up and uh, where'd you train and how to come to the point where you uh, came to Seattle? Uh, I was uh, born and raised in southeast Ohio, about 80 miles south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's a small coal mining and steel mill town. And uh, being from the Midwest, I stayed in the Midwest for my undergraduate training uh, at University of Notre Dame, and after four years there, I was fortunate to be accepted uh, to Duke University Medical School, where I completed my MD degree in 1973, and then went on to start a surgical residency, which I thought was going to be uh, four or five years at Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas, Texas. Uh, however, uh, during my second year of residency, Dr. Shires, the chairman at the time, accepted the chair at the University of Washington in Seattle, and he asked several residents within the program to actually accompany him to Seattle uh, to fill out his plans for the uh, improvements in the training program in Seattle. And several of us did join him, and I transferred from Dallas to Seattle during my second year, completed my training in surgery here in Seattle at the University of Washington, decided at the end of my training that I wished to stay in academics and to pursue basic cellular biology research. And to accomplish that and to obtain the skills necessary to be successful, I did a three-year postdoctoral fellowship in cellular biology and immunology at the Scripps Research Foundation in La Jolla, California. And upon completion of that, I was recruited back to the University of Washington in 1981. And I've been here ever since. So, Dr. Mayor, first off, congratulations on your uh, appointment as the president of the uh, American Surgical Association. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about the association, uh, how you first got involved with it, and how you kind of rose up the ranks to uh, eventually accept uh, this latest position. The uh, American Surgical Association is the oldest and most uh, revered academic surgical organization in the United States and probably in the world. Uh, it's been home to academic surgeons for uh, over 150 years, and it's been a um, backbone of uh, many surgeons who are progressing through the academic ranks. The um, qualifications for entry are very uh, strict. 
it is one of the few organizations that truly tries to vet applicants for membership to ensure that the uh, uh, academic qualifications are met and that there is uh, evidence of ongoing productivity and uh, success in the academic arena uh, to thus ensure an organization that is uh, very consistent and uh, highly qualified in the academic world. Within the organization, uh, it is comprised of those people that you, as a junior faculty member, are constantly being made aware of through their publications, through their book chapters, through their editorship of major books, uh, through their leadership with most, if not all, academic surgical chairmen being members of the American Surgical. And thus, as a young person, it gives you exposure and uh, enables you to become colleagues and, uh, and direct uh, friends and, and mentees and subsequently mentors for the leaders in academic surgery in the United States. Personally, I have always revered the organization, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful group. It's very traditional. Traditions are great in some ways. They also can be difficult in other ways and change slowly. But the best parts of our profession are displayed at the American Surgical, and it's been a great learning experience. And as I mentioned, it's a wonderful place to find outstanding mentors to assist with your career development and advancements over the years. And I've enjoyed those benefits. My strongest mentors have all been members, and uh, they have been my colleagues and mentors throughout my career and very helpful. As far as the organization goes, if you, as in most organizations, it's sort of um, leadership by service, and there's usually numerous opportunities to become involved with committees, contribute to the organization, again, become known by the membership, and in return for that service and support of the organization, you are able to uh, reap the benefits of uh, advancement in the leadership of the organization. Although I consider it a phenomenal honor, I'm not sure why I was chosen as a president-elect and then president, but I consider it the greatest honor in my academic uh, career, and it was indeed a privilege to serve as the president. So, Dr. Mayer, as a part of this Journal Club, we're going to delve in a little bit about your speech. But before we do that, tell us what it was like to come up with a topic for this prestigious honor, and how did you go about that whole process of kind of uh, writing this, uh, this speech? That's a very good question. The information and, and uh, wisdom that is passed on to president-elects of the organization are to start writing your presidential address the day after you're elected, which is a year ahead, which I doubt very few are able to accomplish that. But it is a very interesting process to try and identify a focus that you as the president wish to develop and pass on to the membership. 
Many people recommend choosing, quote, safe topics, such as historical uh, concepts, uh, and at all costs to try to avoid uh, politically divisive topics. Your audience is indeed a very unique audience of uh, academic leaders, and uh, it is a significant challenge to come up with a topic that I think is is going to be effective and received by the membership. Working through the various topics, uh, a major part of my decision was uh, driven by the current changes and uh, social changes within medicine and in many aspects of uh, American life. Uh, Dr. William O. in his presidential address identified the uh, necessity for academic surgery to become more introspective and to begin to deal with the historically absence of adequate diversity, equity, and inclusiveness within the academic ranks. And with the other changes and challenges in, the, uh, in our society at large, I thought that this was a uh, very opportune op- uh, time and opportunity through the presidential address to address these issues, to stimulate the organization, to make the self-introspection necessary to identify the problems, and hopefully to put together efforts during my presidency to try and assist the leaders in academic surgery in uh, not only identifying, but also making changes within our academic communities to improve equity and diversity, with the ultimate goal being it's the best thing for our patients, and it's the right thing to do. And uh, as I say, I was just hopeful that I would be able to make some contribution to the process. I know that in academic surgery, a major part of our calling is mentorship and teaching the next generation, of which I believe creating the ideal academic department is necessary to achieve. And thus, after going through about 100 names, I came up with our calling, representing the major core component of our academic lives, being in mentorship, in teaching, in role modeling, for junior faculty, and for creating the environment in our academic homes for optimal development and uh, encouragement for the development of future leaders. Dr. Mayor, you uh, hinted at some of the uh, programs you have in place for enhancing diversity at your institution. For those who weren't there at your talk, would you mind giving us a, a, just a broader overview of um, the concepts that you discussed and the, and the interventions that you identified for improving diversity? Uh, sure. Um, the opportunities are many. Uh, they have to ideally start at the very top because that allows for optimal involvement, as we were discussing. The dean's office in most Universities now has a special office for diversity, 
And within that office are uh, programs that extend all the way from outreach to the uh, community with uh, involvement in um, minority uh, rich areas for uh, stimulating uh, pre-high school, high school students to become interested in medicine, and then uh, continuing outreach in medical school, both within your own school, but also to other uh, universities that have a high proportion of uh, diversity, and having explicit contacts with those entities that representatives are sent to to identify opportunities for uh, contact with specific individuals, recruitment, involvement in activities uh, within your university, and hopefully being able to improve the pipeline of, uh, of uh, unique uh, underrepresented uh, individuals uh, within your university and department. The other concepts which I think are very important is, is to show the commitment to diversity and equity in your each individual department. And so that falls more on the chairman's shoulders to, again, as we have done here, is create a diversity committee, create a women in surgery committee to highlight the commitment to diversity through having dedicated grand rounds uh, focused on diversity given by individuals, uh, uh, either uh, gender or race or other uh, component of underrepresentation to highlight their importance and the success of these individuals. Within the department, the uh, underrepresented community has to be supported and helped succeed in the, the leadership structure of the university and the department so that those who look at the department see that the diversity community not only is succeeding, but they're succeeding in leadership positions within the department. And it's a constant recognition of this opportunity to involve underrepresented uh, minorities in the department, but also creating opportunities uh, for those uh, people to be best uh, utilized within the leadership of the organization. And it's a, it's a significant effort, but it's an important and necessary effort. And just as we commit to so many other activities and challenges in our departments. This is one that needs to raise, uh, be raised to a level of recognized uh, need and the uh, adequate resources uh, uh, committed to it. The uh, other thing that uh, is, I think, important is to have the chairman or the department division chiefs support their individuals in reaching out to underrepresented minority organizations, such as the Black Surgeons uh, Society and the uh, Asian Surgical Society to, again, recognize uh, the next potential recruitments, 
to learn from these organizations as to activities that will uh, enhance your ability to recruit in diversity and uh, support your other activities. So there's many different activities and opportunities available to become involved uh, to support your, your push to achieve equity and diversity in your department. Dr. Mayor, these are real life situations and they also can touch a nerve in many ways, shapes or forms, uh, as you know. So as a leader and a major leader at a major institution, how do you fulfill the much needed goal of inclusiveness and equity and diversity and yet kind of construct a culture and an environment where you avoid the situation where some people may think, well, that person only got the job because of gender or equity or inclusiveness. How do you, how do you mold that type of culture and how do you, how do you make sure that you don't carry it too far, but you still have exactly uh, what you need in terms of culture? Uh, it's an excellent question. As you say, it is a ongoing, uh, significant challenge. The way that I believe to look at diversity is in the use of diversity in recruiting is that there's now adequate, well-documented data showing that organizations and medical organizations who optimize diversity and support equity and inclusion actually end up with a better product. In the business world, it's been shown repeatedly that those organizations that are highly diverse and inclusive end up with a better product, better financial response, and an increased uh, stability of their of their organizations. So I believe when you look at an individual, diversity is a specific quality that adds to that person's contribution to the overall team, the overall department, the overall uh, goals that you're trying to achieve. It does not carry on to the point, though, of, as you say, hiring someone purely because they bring diversity. I think you have to be very careful that you hire individuals that are qualified for the position. Because if you hire people that aren't qualified and you're unable to give them the support they need to be successful, their failures are going to be much more damaging to your your ultimate goals that you're trying to reach than not hiring them in the first place. So I think you need to recognize that diversity is an, a, a quality that contributes to the organization and needs to be identified as such. It needs to be uh, carefully integrated into the overall merits as we do for any person that we hire or put into the, a uh, system is that they are the good fit for that um, position. And then we have to make the commitment as we do to all junior faculty or hires that we will provide them the infrastructure, the education, the additional clinical training, or whatever's needed to make sure that that person is successful and seen as a success and will attract future diversity and success for your program. But it is, as you say, a very difficult process 
And you don't want to have people looked at as the only reason they got the job was because they bring diversity. But it is a factor, and it's been shown to be a positive factor for the organization. So, Dr. Mayor, uh, I wanted to ask you, so you, you talked about um, uh, in your presidential address about microaggressions. Uh, you know, anybody who's been in the surgical education world for any period of time knows that, you know, surgical education is, is, is often built on uh, micro and macro aggressions and public humiliation even. How do you handle this in your department? If you could explain a little bit as to, you know, kind of what microaggressions are um, and what some effective ways of, of dealing with it in a surgical program without making it a completely, you know, sterile environment? Yes, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. The um, challenges remain. The microaggressions were first uh, identified uh, approximately 50 years ago in the subtle and non-subtle conscious and not conscious uh, interactions of the predominant white community against the black African-American community. And they continue to be present, and they are uh, now expanded to all components of the underrepresented in, in medicine uh, communities. And there are those subtle put-downs, uh, unfair comparisons, uh, attempts to uh, isolate and identify individuals as different so that they're lessened uh, in their comfort level within the overall team, within the community, and feel of uh, less value and feel demeaned, non-respected. And ultimately, if it persists, it can even lead to driving many people out of surgery, which would, is the worst outcome. But these are just, as was mentioned, many subtle continual day-to-day barbs, uh, put-downs, identifications of difference, implying lesser quality of uh, an individual. And a method of dealing with this is primarily a zero-tolerance approach. And to have that, it needs everyone to support it. And that's the biggest change because as many of these things have become ingrained and part of the traditions of our hierarchical training system in surgery, it becomes very easy, unfortunately, for some people in positions of power to use that position to to uh, have these microaggressions against those in a lesser position, whether it's a trainee or a uh, another member of the uh, healthcare team, such as a nurse. Um, it's a process that cannot be allowed, again, from the top, from the dean's office, the chair's office. There needs to be a zero tolerance. And along with this, two other things that need to be done is tracking. So one needs to provide surveys that are anonymous so that people can truly comment and provide the feedback as to what really is happening in the department and in the School of Medicine. And with those numbers, the need and focus for future education and training will be identified. And that 
training and education then needs to be an active process rather than just checking a box off. We talked about it once last year, so that is covered. It truly is a dynamic day-to-day process, and it's very difficult. Um, Many of us have uh, adapted um, either sayings or uh, uh, actions that we utilize in our interactions that we may not even recognize are potentially belittling or being disrespectful. And thus, the entire community has to be on board to help and be empowered to identify those issues when they're happening, to provide the feedback. Hopefully, that will then change behavior. But if it doesn't, there need to be mechanisms to, again, provide feedback to the chair, to the to the uh, diversity office to allow for more progressive involvement with training, education. And finally, if people are unwilling to change or recognize this negative impact, it leads to ultimate dismissal. And um, again, it all comes back to a zero tolerance uh, approach to this uh, constant uh, challenge. And it's difficult also. These are very difficult issues that we're having to deal with. Many of our best productive and uh, rich uh, contributors to the department may at times, knowingly or unknowingly, be contributing to a less than optimal environment for learning and training. And we need to have mechanisms to identify that, educate, and change behavior. So, Dr. Mayer, to follow up on that Um, I think it it is difficult to recognize these microaggressions sometimes, and you've touched on this uh, during your address and um, during this conversation, but how can we better recognize microaggressions when they're happening? And do you have an anecdote of maybe a poor patient outcome or interaction that occurred due to these microaggressions? The best way to recognize them is to take some of the... um, tools that are available on the internet that will walk you through the various categories of microaggression and provide examples. And through that, any individual can see where they themselves or others are utilizing microaggressions in their daily uh, interchange with uh, other members of the team. I don't have a specific anecdote that I can give you other than if you Look at the activities in M&M conferences, in other team steps, reviews of uh, episodes that are less than ideal. You can frequently see in those that someone, because of microaggressions, did not speak up, did not become optimally involved in the uh, care of the patient during that episode because of the fears for the microaggressions. And thus, the patient is the one who ends up potentially suffering. And I, again, I think that looking at just M&Ms, if you take apart exactly why things went wrong, you will frequently see it's because the individual is uh, afraid or unable to optimally participate in the team. Uh, Dr. Mayer, thank you for uh, that great insight into a difficult subject matter. Uh, One thing we end uh, all of our interviews with is a final five to get to know our guests just a little bit better. Uh, The first question I'd like to ask you is, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, 
what type of music? Uh, yes, I will frequently listen to music in the operating room. I usually defer the selection to the resident who is the uh, performing surgeon in the procedure, unless it's really something that increases my blood pressure and tension levels that I feel it's not helping the patient. Personally, I go with my age group, which is the Stones, Doors, the usual, hard rock and roll. But again, as I say, I usually defer to the resident who's performing the procedure. Okay, number two, uh, do you have any hobbies, talents, or interests outside the OR um, that you can share with us? Uh, my hobbies are that I'm still trying to stay somewhat physically active. I enjoy snow skiing, water skiing, bicycle riding. Um, I don't do any to a fanatical level. I try and deal with the moderation so that I can continue to do them. Also, I've been blessed with the opportunities in my academic career at this point to do a lot of traveling for the American College of Surgeons, and my wife frequently accompanies me, so we're enjoying... Uh, meeting and becoming involved in multiple medical cultures around the world, which is a very exciting and, and pleasant activity. Well, that leads into our next question. Is there a favorite trip or vacation that you've taken recently? Well, we just returned from a meeting and uh, sightseeing a tour with friends in uh, Tuscany, uh, avoiding the large cities and enjoying the small medieval towns and wonderful food. Uh, it was a very pleasant, relaxing trip. Just prior to that, we spent uh, a week in Australia at a meeting in Sydney and also did some uh, local traveling at that time. So I, I don't really have one specific uh, favorite trip. I, as I say, I really enjoy the, the uh, meeting the high-quality people involved in medicine around the world and uh, listen to their stories and share uh, what's happening in their culture and medicine is uh, a very rewarding uh, part of uh, the opportunities I'm being given. Number four, what would you have done if you didn't go into surgery in particular and medicine in general? Um, well, at one time during med school, because of my mentors at Duke, I was actually going to be a cardiologist or an interventional car cardiologist. But if I did not go into medicine, I really don't know what I would do. I like to argue a lot, so I could have become a lawyer probably. But yes, probably cardiology if I wasn't in surgery and uh, legal aspects of uh, the profession, uh, if not in surgery. Great. And our fifth question is, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice when you were on your first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself? I think things worked out well for me. And I think psychologically, it's worked out fairly well for me. So I would say do what I did, which was enjoy being a surgeon, resident and attending. Feel blessed that you're being given the opportunity to, to take care of ill patients and that they put their care and life in your hands. Uh, it's a great honor. Uh, so just work hard, learn what you can, and uh, enjoy providing care to patients. Uh, it's an unbelievable opportunity of uh, any profession. Well, Dr. Mayer, thanks so much for joining us here on the Annals of Surgery uh, Behind the Knife Journal Club podcast. And congratulations again on a uh, wonderful and uh, 
well-deserved honor of being the president of the American Surgical Association. Thank you very much. Until next time, dominate the day. 